This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome everyone to the Ganatantra podcast, now on the New Books Network. This is Sario Natarajan and I am with... Hello, Prasanna Kumar. Hi, everyone. Hi. Uh, to our old listeners, welcome back. And to our new listeners, hello. Uh, we, the Ganatantra podcast, are now on New Books Network. And this time we are committed, like always, to exploring questions of Indian politics, law and social studies through the lens of books but with the authors themselves. Uh, and today we are very excited to have with us Ambar Sinha. Hello, Ambar. Hi, hi, Saryu. Hi, Aluk. Hi, hi, Ambar. Hi. Um, just a very quick introduction of uh, Ambar before we jump into discussing his book, The Network Public. Uh, Ambar works at the intersection of law, technology and society and studies the impact of digital technologies on socio-political processes and structures. His research aims to further the discourse on regulatory practices around the internet, technology and society. He's currently a senior fellow for Trustworthy AI at the Mozilla Foundation, studying models for algorithmic transparency. He's the author of the book we're going to discuss today, The Network Public, How Social Media is Changing Democracy. Hi, Amber. Hey. I feel like I'm saying hi a lot, but uh, <laughs> if we could jump in very quickly into the discussion, um, I'd love to hear from you, Amber, your professional journey and um, you know what led you to uh, think of the themes in the book um, and you know what brought you to tussling with these questions uh, through your writing. Uh, so, I mean, in terms of my professional journey, <clears throat> much like both of you, I went to law school and I think now it's over a decade since I graduated. Uh, when I was, uh, you know, towards the end of my time in college, I became extremely interested in <clears throat> technology law. And, but more specifically, I think the the sort of debate and discourse around uh, privacy at that point of time. I also, you know, worked briefly while in college with uh, Center for Internet and Society back then as an intern. Uh, and seriously considered pursuing uh, a professional opportunity with them. But then <clears throat> I decided to kind of try uh, my hand at corporate law, at least in the first few years of my career. Uh, so I think I, I worked as, as a technology and private equity lawyer for the first four, four years or so of my career before coming back to CIS. And then I was with CIS for the next seven years until uh, June this year, when I stepped down from there. So uh, I think for me, the my professional journey has, has always involved around questions of technology. Even when I worked, I worked briefly as an in-house counsel. I was primarily focusing on uh, intellectual property licensing issues and patent issues in the tech company. And then I worked as a PE and advisory lawyer primarily for tech companies in the startup segment in Bangalore. <clears throat> and then obviously my entire career in public policy has focused on emerging technology issues. This book, uh, I think it, it came to me uh, by accident in, in some ways. The Yamini Chaudhary's team at Rupa Publications reached out to me back in 2017, 18. Uh, to just talk about a few ideas around what might be most relevant for uh, for a you know the audience in India in terms of the impact that uh, digital technologies were having on democratic processes and eventually sort of narrowed down to a broad framing which focused more on on social networking websites which I think dominates a large part of my book uh, but I think at at the core of it. Uh, my my own research journey sort of began with privacy research, which sort of gradually morphed into you know big data research, cybersecurity research on one hand, and then more recently AI and emerging technologies research. And uh, some of the questions that you that uh, 
that I've been interested in from the very beginning featured in this book. So uh, I think <clears throat> even the name of the book is actually a callback to uh, Walter Lippmann's The Phantom Public, and the which is initially the name that I wanted to go with, but uh, the publisher didn't think it would sell very well. But uh, the but that's that's sort of the debate that I have uh, that has informed a lot of my research across different areas. The idea of what uh, constitutes a public, uh, a functioning public in in a democratic setup, and uh, the the strange sort of newer challenges that uh, opaque digital technologies pose in terms of the public's ability to to understand that technology and make sense of it. And obviously in this book, uh, a lot of focus is uh, it's not so much on, on privacy as such, but it's more on on free speech, on uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of problematic forms of speech that have emerged and become more and more uh, become more and more sort of important in terms of regulatory discourse. So I focus a lot on misinformation and you know different forms of extreme speech and online harassment. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of it is through that lens of of trying to understand the role of the public uh, within a democratic polity and and how uh, and and the kind of complications that that come with it. Right. Uh, thank you so much for that, Amber. And, you know, the book itself is a fascinating read. Uh, and one of the things you do over the course of the um, of the book and the, you know, laying out the arguments in the book, uh, you talk about this, you know, specific form of democratic backsliding that social media technologies seem to enable, uh, which is where authoritarian governments continue to operate within the framework of a constitutional legitimacy. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit more about this argument, how you built this up, and, you know, if you could also help us with a little a bit of examples around this, we'd love to understand um, this from the lens of the focus of your book. Sure. So uh, the, the term that you mentioned, democratic backsliding, it's a term that Nancy Bormier, a political scientist, came up with. And uh, while I was doing research for the book, I came across a lot of different uh, terms that have been used in the last decade. So democratic decay, uh, executive aggrandizement, uh, democratic deconsolidation, and a lot of uh, uh, terms have been used to try to describe this phenomenon. But I felt that democratic backsliding perhaps uh, described it more accurately than anything else. And what Bourbino talks about is is just sort of this shift in terms of how democratic processes are compromised now. Right? So when we think of democracy uh, and its decay, the, the sort of <clears throat> uh, popular kind of picture that uh, that comes to our mind often is that of uh, democratic governments giving way to some form of a coup d'etat. So we've had sort of military coups uh, in various countries over the last, let's say, 50 years. Also, we've had executive coups, uh, which doesn't necessarily involve the military dictatorship, but involves uh, a democratically elected official suspending constitutional processes and sort of consolidating seize power, often done in one fell swoop. So when we, when we see uh, instances of dismantling of democracy, uh, often they were tied to this idea of uh, doing them in one fell swoop, which is not something that we see anymore. And I think that's where uh, the idea of backsliding comes, where there is a gradual uh, sort of decay of processes, and often they involve uh, compromise of institutions that are supposed to keep the executive in check. And uh, <clears throat> so it's not really, you know, so when even before that, when we speak of elections as as an, as an essential ingredient of uh, of a functioning democracy, in, in, in its sort of earlier avatar, when people had to compromise the election process, right? So the the kind of things that one would hear about would be, uh, you know, more obvious forms of election fraud. So there's count falsification, there's sort of ballot stuffing, uh, there's booth capturing, which was highly prevalent in India. 
I was going but to I say booth capturing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and in fact, booth capturing has been around in some form or the other since the very first general elections in 1952 in India. So uh, we've had kind of a long history of that happening in some measure or the other. But I think now with more scrutiny, with, uh, with working EVMs, uh, I think this form of election fraud is, is, is much less, uh, you see, but there are other ways in which, you know, if we're focusing on elections for a minute, uh, that we see a compromise of that process. So one of the things that I talk about in detail in my book is about the use of government resources for political campaigning. Uh, <clears throat> then another thing with, uh, with the use of digital technologies for voter registration is tampering with uh, voter registration, purification of electoral roads. And then uh, at the level of the uh, the election management body itself, so in India is the election commission of India. And so packing election commissioners uh, and changing of electoral policies largely to favor incumbents. So these are the kinds of, uh, you know, shifts that we've seen in terms of more outright ways in which processes uh, and institutions could be compromised. Now what we have is, there continues to be a veneer of legality and constitutionality. And uh, it's about looking at that constitutional framework and how rules can be stretched to their limits and perhaps even beyond them uh, within that. And while also continuing to retain the legitimacy uh, that comes from these institutions. So I think that's been the, the major shift that we see. It's, it's also uh, and the, the, the role that digital technologies play in that I think is, is multifaceted. So, at, you know, one is obviously about the ways in which digital technologies are employed to uh, facilitate uh, democratic backsliding. So, so, for instance, one of the things that we've seen about seen is uh, <clears throat> the use of uh, the sort of Sinking of uh, the Aadhaar database with the electoral database, which continues to be a, a very hotly debated issue in India, and how that led to uh, disenfranchisement for a lot of people in different parts of the country where this experiment has so far been run. Uh, we've also seen access to uh, to to databases by uh, ruling parties, and then consequently by their political machinery and the ways in which uh, that access uh, to digital data could be used to weaponize uh, election campaign. So so, the, so at one level, we have the use of digital technologies to, 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 to sort of uh, ensure backsliding. But the other thing is also, you know, with the kind of information dissemination that we have right now, unless uh, the state machinery is in complete control of the communication apparatus, which uh, only a handful of countries in the world have managed to do. Right? In most countries, the state tries to exercise that control, but it's it's uh, uh, the social media as well as uh, the sort of digital dissemination apparatus is a beast that nobody really has full control over. So it's also something like a coup d'etat is, is, was also dependent on managing communication and dissemination of information very, very effectively. And with something like social media, it, it becomes much harder to do that. It's not impossible, as we, I think, will see uh, in the coming years also, but but it's that much harder. And I think the more obvious ways in which we will see uh, executive bodies and political elite try to capture power will be through uh, backs, graduate backsliding uh, and compromising institutions in in a way that uh, that is not as dramatic. Yeah. Uh, no. I mean, I think it also ties into sort of um, broader terms that are used to describe the state of the liberal democracy in a certain way. So the no notion of elected authoritarianism, uh, all of which tie into what social media particularly enables. Uh, but I had a specific follow up to sort of the broader thesis you outlined around democratic backsliding. And I think you hinted at it and you do sort of uh, talk about it a little bit in the book as well. Uh, but sort of the absence of institutional scrutiny Um on decision making. Uh, and I'd love to understand from your perspective and, you know, related to the book as well, um, but also more broadly, like, is there something particular about technology um, that enables 
the executive uh, to play a greater role in decision making with the absence of judicial scrutiny in a certain way? Uh, is it a peculiarity of technology or is it uh, so sort of trying to understand the cause and effect a little bit, uh, but also the ways in which this plays into the broader narrative of uh, democratic backsliding? So I, I wouldn't say it's it's a feature of technology per se, but I, I think it's a combination of uh, of a certain technological bias uh, that we generally have, and uh, at at uh, at one level also the lack of uh, of desire for uh, you know various kinds of machineries to hold the executive accountable, and technology in that sense presents a convenient. Uh, uh, kind of excuse there. So, to give you an example, uh, in, even if you look at the pandemic, uh, which is not some, I mean, my book predated that, so it's not covered in any way. But if you look at uh, some of the more controversial things employing digital technologies that have happened in the pandemic, uh, what we see there is so, so if we take something like contact tracing and the RFPC2 app, uh, or if we see uh, you know the the sort of use of COVID platforms, and then the sort of covert uh, and insidious way in which the Ayushman Bharat Digital Health Mission has been sort of populated using these platforms. Uh, what technology does allow is is a framing of narrative. I feel so. Uh, contact tracing emerged as as this sort of silver bullet, uh, and at a time when people were really desperate for ways in which one could address uh, the pandemic and uh, then what what technology does allow you to do is to push through uh, <clears throat> these initiatives without sufficient scrutiny without and, and there's also the excuse that those who are expected to discharge that role are completely uh, <clears throat> uh, incapable of, of, of exercising uh, that sort of scrutiny. So, if we also look at, uh, you know, going back a little bit, we look at the Aadhaar uh, litigation. Eventually, what it boiled down to was a PowerPoint presentation made by the UIDIC CEO in the court, right? And there are other forms of uh, of uh, review and scrutiny that were available to the court. So it's not it's not the first time in the history of Indian jurisprudence that the Supreme Court had to deal with a specialized issue which uh, the judges were not trained in any way to look at, right? So we've had environment litigation in the past. Uh, we've had committees that the court has set up. So there are innovative judicial mechanisms that have been employed. Uh, but when it came to to sort of digital technology. And I think this is something that we we have seen across a handful of, of litigations that, that have involved, right? So it's almost as if uh, litigation is, uh, is is a form of pedagogy. Judges are not uh, trained in, in technological issues that they deal with. So for litigants, one of the key roles is to actually try to emphasize the nature of technology that they're dealing with. So this is something that we saw uh, even in the Shreya single judgment back in 2015, where uh, I think a lot of attention was paid to just trying to explain what a Facebook wall uh, means uh, to judges. Um, and I think with the with the Aadhaar judgment, it became quite clear because the, despite having modes and means at its disposal to look into questions of fact, uh, the court was quite unwilling to do so because uh, we see this sort of affidavit-based uh, phenomena where you can file these affidavits uh, which uh, give a certain amount of information about the technology that you're dealing with. And the court is very happy to accept all of that at face value while also completely ignoring, for instance, other forms of what I would say is legitimate evidence. There is anecdotal evidence. There are sort of legitimate news reports. Uh, there's ethnographic studies, all of which were presented uh, in petitions before the court. Uh, but there again, I think it, it's the nature of, of discourse around it uh, and uh, that, that allowed the court to actually ignore all of that. And that's something that I think when I, when I talk about how... Uh, misinformation and extreme speech further democratic backsliding. 
uh, I think it's important to to look at that because what we have is uh, is this kind of extreme speech in a way is both a cause and result of the backsliding. How is it a how is it a cause? Is because when speech is polarized and it, it diverts sort of public attention away from issues of uh, of national interest, largely to sort of these zero sum conflicts, uh, the relative status of different groups in the polity, and <clears throat> when the the nature of this discourse is such that it 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 starts kind of raising these uh, fundamental questions about the legitimacy of uh, the sources of information itself. Uh, I think that's uh, that leads to a situation where uh, various stakeholders who are involved in the policy don't know how to actually navigate that space. So I think there, and and then it also works the other way around. It's a vicious circle where the, then the, that backsliding also continues to entrench free speech. So when you have already loss of public trust in a political process, then that loss further leads to greater polarization. The public turns to people to play on their jingoism, sectarianism, and then the already bubbling resentments leads to more, more intolerance, more distrust, civil liberties are restrained. So I think the uh, it's it's not that uh, that the institutions that we have. So I spoke about the judiciary, and earlier I I briefly referred to the election commission. So it's not that these institutions don't have tools at their disposal to deal with digital technology. It's not uh, digital technology is not. Uh, this kind of phantom that that they don't have any way to to work with, but it does provide a very convenient excuse uh, to to sort of employ that inherent technical technological bias to to rely on uh, sort of the stories around the efficacy of technology and how literal or biased they might be. So it does provide a very convenient excuse uh, to. Uh, I think stakeholders who don't want to scrutinize the role of the state. So, Amber, let me just jump in here on a question that I've had, and this is something that uh, I sort of think about quite a bit. Uh, it seems to me, coming through from what you're also saying, uh, could it be that in the minds of policymakers, right? Uh, and I don't want to use only the Indian context. In the minds of a lot of policymakers. Do they fully comprehend the business model which drives social media companies? Because in as much that the, the technology is not being put to like random use, it is being used for a very specific purpose, which is to make profits for these organizations. And the business model is driven by showing you the content that they think you want to see, right, to get you to engage. And in some senses, that kind of results in the problems that you sort of spoke about in terms of hate speech, in terms of misinformation. Uh, I wonder if governments around the world sort of understand that this is what drives the way social media affects democracies and therefore, perhaps to simplify it a little bit, are they following the money? Sorry, I was in mute. So I think that they are not following the money at all. Uh, and I think that there are a variety of reasons involved uh, you know, within that. So again, in India, but also globally, the so with regard to something like election management, with regard to something like political campaigning, over a period of time, regulatory models have emerged uh, for transparency, for ensuring that uh, <clears throat> that there are sort of campaign finance laws. There are ways in which we we try to control uh, lobbying practices. But I think what uh, it's 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 quite ironic because the the advent of digital technologies was supposed to lead to across the board more formalization, but what it does, uh, I think, with with political uh, speech and campaigning, what it has allowed is the emergence of a lot of diffuse actors, right? So actors who are uh, connected with the political ecosystem, but they're not formally a part of it. So uh, I think. Uh, Rahul Varma, in his research, talks about the impact that vote mobilizers had on the 2014 election. And uh, he, uh, again, the, the the key sort of thesis uh, that he makes is that it's not that, uh, that Narendra Modi was by himself 
uh, no, just a vote puller. While that was the case, what he was much more effective in doing as a political figure was uh, inspire a lot of vote mobilizers to uh, to join the campaign who were not uh, in any formal way a part of the political setup, and and they were instrumental in, in sort of carrying uh, forth uh, that mission. So, so I think what. <clears throat> we do see is a lot of diffuse actors coming into play. We saw, we see a lot of uh, convoluted ways in which uh, campaigns and political speech on these platforms is then funded. And, and that uh, makes it, I, I think there perhaps some kind of an overhaul of the regulatory process uh, which governs campaign finance <clears throat> needs to be done. But it's also... <clears throat> Excuse me, uh, but it's also harder uh, to do so when there is a lack of understanding about the business model, like you mentioned, Alok. The so when Cambridge Analytica broke out, uh, it was shocking for a lot of people in, in a lot of policymakers, a lot of people in the political elite, because there was uh, a marked uh, gap in terms of understanding the business model. Of, of social networking websites, right? So the, the kind of personal data that got shared, uh, the ways in which uh, that sort of personal profiles could be manipulated for personalization and targeting was from the very beginning embedded in the business model and consequently the information architecture of these platforms, right? That's how they've been created. That's the entire uh, monetization model that they have. And... <clears throat> advertising revenue in that sense is is what drives it right so the but the fact in that it could be weaponized in in, in fairly simple ways actually uh, is what caught a lot of people by surprise and and that, that sort of increased attention but i think again going back to my earlier point about the kind of convenience that digital technologies afford uh, political actors in terms of evading accountability uh, so, and again, this is, I think, irony of ironies. For, for years, tech companies have circumvented regulation by saying that they're not sector-specific operations, but they are primarily, you know, digital technology companies. So we're not uh, a cab company, but we're a platform. We're not a logistics company, but we're a platform. We're uh, not in the business of providing healthcare services, but we're just a digital facilitator. And that has allowed a variety of business models to thrive, exist, and and evade all forms of regulatory oversight. Now, actually, the tables have turned in a way. So, the you know, in terms of political discourse in the last few years, the easiest target has perhaps been Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, uh, and who can be blamed for all the ills of of the online world. Uh, and when we look at some of these problems that exist on the uh, on the digital green, problems of online harassment, problems of uh, extreme speech, problems of misinformation. Yes, digital technologies do entrench that, they do uh, amplify that, but they are a reflection of social realities. Uh, you know, we had sort of these, this, this bizarrely titled phenomenon of WhatsApp-based lynchings in 2018. Uh, and that was not a misinformation problem. That was uh, a problem about incitement to violence by a form of messaging. And perhaps WhatsApp was instrumental in uh, in much faster dissemination, which led to mobilization of violent actors in that. But it was a much broader kind of sociopolitical problem that we're dealing with. But what uh, the focus on these companies allow political actors to do is to just point fingers at them and uh, portray the problem as primarily arising in, in the digital dream, whereas that's not the case at all. So so I think it is a combination of, of various things. I think the, the emergence of diffuse actors do definitely allow, uh, do, do, it definitely impedes regulation in the ways that we understand it. And then again, I think it, it does afford a certain degree of, uh, of convenience to political elites in terms of who you paint as as the sort of villain in, in the entire picture? There is there is an, a significant role uh, with regard to a lot of these speech based problems and the repercussions that are happening that social media companies do play. 
but again, it would be futile to to lay the blame entirely at their feet. Yeah. You know, just a response more than a question, really, um, Ambar, in very many of the episodes in our previous avatar, we spent a lot of time discussing federalism. And one of the affordances of technology, you know, you just said, like the hero, the villain of the piece, like you can sort of frame the villain of the piece, what social media also allows you to do in a certain way, uh, I would say is it frames allows you to frame the hero of the piece. And what it does is then nationalize debates. Uh, and make them very central, make them about one figure, uh, and you know the polarization or all of the ecosystem of issues that flow out around that. So in a certain way, so the democratic black backsliding also perhaps relates to this notion of federalism, uh, because one of the significant elements of our democracy has been the federal structure. I use has been with a uh, with some degree of caution, but also some degree of certainty. But you know there has been a backsliding around this notion of um, the center versus the states and, uh, you know, local debates framing electoral preferences uh, versus what social media allows you to do, which is create hero figures um, and also the mystique around technology in a certain way then just fuels that, uh, I would say. So uh, just an observation really than a question. So. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll actually <clears throat> go one step ahead and talk about uh, the kind of technological determinism that might be at play here. So technology is uh, the more sort of default and uh, and inevitable it becomes in our lives it it fashion it refashions the world around it right it, so so for instance to give you an example uh, you know people who work in, in sort of linguistic sciences have spoken about how uh, writing technologies and how they've been adapted online uh, have begun to play more and more of a deterministic role in, in a particularly narrow ways in which languages are represented online. So, uh, you know, for people who might be Hindi speakers who are listening to this, uh, there are various letters in the Devanagari script that we write uh, in multiple ways. But if we have fonts, for instance, uh, which only write them in specific ways, over a, over the course of you know just one generation, uh, that becomes the only way in which you learn to represent it. And I think uh, you know it's, it's a digression, but coming back to our specific uh, question that we're dealing with, <clears throat> what what is all sort of has been peculiar in the last decade is the way in which the political discourse in India has been reframed as a sort of right versus left simple discourse. And the our political system has always been much more complicated, right? So the and, and the federal structure plays a large role in it. There are various sort of regional actors, there are sort of uh, you know, caste and subcaste uh, questions that are at play. So it's not... Uh, you know, unlike, let's say, the US, where the sort of left versus right framing uh, has existed across the board, across issues, that's not how we've, we've kind of learned to look at things in India. Uh, but I, I also find it strange that uh, now that we try to reframe political discourse and we try to weaponize speech using digital technologies, and a large part of that is data science, right? Uh, where we're trying to understand uh, and predict the ways in which people react to information and and, and, and how it will <clears throat> activate them in some way. Uh, I, I think it, it uh, a sort of multi-ethnic, multi-party, multi-faceted political uh, system that we've had in India doesn't render itself to data science uh, as well as, as a more simple right versus left discourse does. So in some part, what I also wonder is whether uh, sort of these digital technologies are, are in some ways playing a role in refashioning the nature of a political discourse by emphasizing it more and more. So I think that uh, that is also, way, those are also ways in which technology does play a role uh, in terms of uh, determining the, the, the contours of the debate that we deal with. I mean, in that sense, it's a bit like statistics, right? You can only measure what the tool allows you or the device allows you to measure and not anything else. And so the some of the complexity and the variation uh, is very much sort of aggregated to the mean and then you 
just infer around that, uh, which is why the binary is very easy to understand, whereas anything more complicated or more layered um, or not statistically probable or the majority then sort of gets uh, eroded away. Uh, but Alok, I think you had something to ask. Over to you. Yeah. Uh, no, Ambar, I think just wanted to get back to two things which you focus in the book, um, which is kind of like the problematic parts of speech, which you sort of say that social media has kind of amplified, which is misinformation and hate speech. Um, and one, of course, could you just talk us through the process of choosing why, why you want to focus on these two? And the second part of my question is, do you see this as two separate kinds of problems which have come out from various different causes or two variations of what is essentially the at the heart of the problem with social media? Thanks. That, that's actually a question that I struggled with a fair bit while, uh, while sort of doing research on my book also. Because, uh, and then I think... I, I kind of refer to them separately because it is perhaps in, in sort of popular regulatory discourse, it's it's easier to understand them as as two separate things. Just we know what hate speech is. We know what, we we have a, we have some understanding of what uh, extreme speech is. We've had more and more of an understanding of misinformation and disinformation in the last few years. But I think it's they, they are not uh, distinct phenomena that that come together here. They're very much I think. Uh, different facets of the same problem. So I, I, I think Sahana Udupa has a paper in EPW where she she actually talks about a variety of different things. And uh, she said that the, the, the term that she felt most accurately captures all of this is the Hindi word Gali, which uh, cuts across uh, harassment, abuse. It sort of also refers to you know comedy and parody, in terms of denigrating another actor. And I think uh, the use of a sort of uh, malinformation or misinformation in terms of abusing someone has also always been very, very instrumental. But sort of to go back to to the earlier question that we were discussing and how it relates to you, we have to think about any kind of thriving democracy, right? We generally speak about three essential ingredients. There's free and fair elections that we spoke about at some length. Uh, and there is uh, the ability of people to organize themselves for the purposes of protest. And most importantly, there, are, there have to be working forms of deliberation. So free and fair elections are the minimum standard for any functioning democracy. But I think uh, <clears throat> for it to be a working deliberative democracy, you need platforms where, uh, uh, where exchange of reasons, ideas, arguments are possible. And then that discourse leads to, uh, uh, to, <clears throat> to an expectation that elected representatives have to justify their decisions by again engaging within the same sort of public discourse mechanism. And so the, the sort of the process of deliberation, debate, persuasion, in addition to working elections, is uh, what I argue uh, crucial for the legitimacy of any functioning democracy. And I think there, uh, <clears throat> what we do see is uh, the emergence of of uh, extreme speech, uh, misinformation, hate speech. And one of the things that I don't go into a lot of detail in my book, but I've written about later, is online harassment focused specifically on certain demographics. Uh, so what do what, what they uh, gen together, what they uh, do is they allow for a vitiation of, of that deliberative uh, discourse ecosystem. So I... I I often kind of take the example of of the playbook that Big Tobacco has used uh, over the last, let's say, 50 to 60 years. So you, you create a system where indisputable facts can be disputable, uh, where unquestionable sources can be questioned, right? So with what Big Tobacco did was the first, the, there was a clear connection between smoking and lung cancer and mouth cancer. They first complicated the question uh, and funded research to show how cancer could have several causes. Then they created doubts about definitive links between cancer and smoking. Then they questioned the legitimacy of genuine research and stories, uh, dismissing them as anecdotal uh, or as simple statistics 
or saying that any studies which involve animals are completely irrelevant. So you start complicating that discourse and you start raising questions uh, in a way that uh, completely delegitimizes uh, the value of the institutions which are at play, right? So expert opinion, the, the very idea of, of objective truth, when all of those things become questionable, then you have a culture where words do not really have a meaning. <clears throat> and I think that uh, is, is what the, the sort of uh, proliferation of, of problematic speech online has managed to do, because it does... Uh, so on the one hand, you what uh, social media particularly and internet in general was supposed to do was to empower people who didn't have access to a platform, right? to democratize access to information, but also to democratize creation of content. Uh, and to a large extent, it has done that. But instead of, uh, of a situation where we felt that we feel that more and more people would be online. The nature of discourse would be richer, uh, would be more evolved. What we do see is, is a complete reversal of that. And I think a large factor at play is, is the speed at which these things have happened. So it's not that uh, traditional modes of communication were anywhere close to perfect, right? And they've also gone through their own crests and troughs. We've seen the rise of yellow journalism. We've seen uh, the emergence of uh, of certain standards, again, standards which are often uh, violated, but standards which exist in terms of dividing editorial content from commercial interests. Uh, so those are values and systems that have evolved over a period of time, and they, they, play a, they played an important role in trying to uh, create a, a deliberate democracy ecosystem. But with digital technology, because of the rapid speed in which this has happened, uh, we haven't had time to to evolve uh, these codes of conduct, these uh, you know even self-regulatory ways in which they can be controlled. And I think the the other thing, like Alok referred to earlier, is that far from kind of creating some kind of a barrier between editorial control and uh, commercial interests, it is advertising revenue which drives the very nature of, of these algorithms, right? So in terms of what information must be collected, who has, uh, who are the stakeholders who play a role in influencing that, how personalization and targeting works, all of that is uh, dictated by this sort of one single question of creating more eyeballs, which can translate into advertising revenue. So, so I think there, what one could argue is that we are, you know, if you have to draw a parallel between traditional news media corporations and, and how uh, <clears throat> we are seeing social media companies playing a role in being primary uh, providers of, of news and information, we might be at the very early stages of, uh, of dissemination of that information without any working ways to, to regulate it. Most of the regulatory proposals that we've had, not just in India, but across the world, are severely problematic. So there are no easy answers uh, to this question also. Uh, so I think that it's also uh, perhaps a moment in time where we don't know what to do about it. Which sort of uh, kinds of, I mean, I was going to get into that point and you, you have sort of slightly deflated the question that I had in mind, which I was like, what do we do about it? Yeah. And you've said humanity doesn't seem to know what to do about it. But let me just sort of uh, reframe that question a little bit. Uh, do you see that the future lies in, I mean, there are two possible ways. Um, one, and when we are recording, I've just recently seen that Google has started putting out ads on social media itself. Uh, using well-known actors in Bollywood to say, this is how you identify misinformation. This is how you identify fake news. And not not, not in the preachy sense, but to sort of say, hey, somebody just told you you got $10,000 as a reward. Don't you think you should be a little careful? In, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of actually pretty well made. Uh, <clears throat> one, is that the way forward? Is, is it for platforms to take that responsibility and say, okay, we will sort of proactively teach people how to identify such content, um, not get taken in by it, and maybe that could improve things. 
or do we still see that this is something for the state to step in which brings a different set of problems with it but primarily in terms of the approach do you see that the state perhaps should take the first role on this yeah, and if I may jump in with a sort of third dimension to the question, sorry to interrupt, and how much of this can be left to the platform themselves? Because across the globe, there are, this, uh, there are these debates around self-regulation and self-moderation and self-governance. Uh, around which, uh, you know, there are elements of which which might be relevant, but I suppose my larger concern is uh, I read read somewhere that self governance stands in the way stands in relation to governance the same way uh, self righteousness stands to righteousness, and so it, it's like deeply problematic if you think about like where the incentives lie. So you know, how would you see sort of these three like media literacy, state and then platform responsibility, more broadly speaking, how do they sort of intersect and play out and how relevant are they? I mean, without doubt, all all three of them have to play an important role. I think it has to be a more composite strategy when we have to deal with something uh, which is so multi-headed in, in its nature. Uh, so going back to... Uh, to sort of my my sort of original kind of genesis for this idea, the Phantom Public and the Lippmann Dewey debates, where again they 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 in in back in the nineteen twenties they talk about the role that uh, what is the legitimate role that a public can be expected to play in 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 uh, in a political ecosystem, and I think there uh, at least I remain quite hopeful that. Uh, there are ways in which uh, we can try to address the transparency problem uh, that could empower individuals. So, so the problem with both self-regulation and uh, sort of regulatory proposals that have come from the state is that all of this seems to be a part of this sort of broader uh, global battle that we seem to find ourselves in the middle of, which is for which is a battle for data. Right. So in in terms of state regulation, what we see, like for, for instance, what we saw with intermediary guidelines uh, and content regulation in India was largely uh, forms of regulation that take away power from big tech companies and then give that to the state. So uh, there is, and, and sort of provide that access to data. We had similar concerns with the personal data protection regulation also is that it, it is uh, creating accountability measures for uh, private companies, but in a way that, that you don't empower individuals, you don't empower the public, but you largely move that power away from private sector to the state. So I think that's that's the big problem that we see. And, and any form of self-regulatory measures that you've seen have been largely insufficient, very, very facile. I mean, uh, particularly, I think around the 2019 elections, I covered them in some detail in my book, and and those were sort of uh, quite shameful, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, so, I, I the state definitely has a role to play. What I uh, what I do wonder is is what is the appropriate level at which the state needs to to come at it. So, uh, government intervention. Uh, with regard to digital technologies, what is the level at which it needs to to come at? So again, to, to go in a, in a slightly different direction, uh, another thing that we've seen in India is the state's endorsement of a lot of technological ecosystems that have emerged, right? So India, Stack, Health, Stack, these are ecosystems that have emerged from the private sector, which the state has then endorsed. And there are all kinds of sort of conflict of interest and other issues that have been raised. But to me, the more fundamental issue is, uh, is it appropriate for the for the state to actually endorse a very particular vision of digital technologies or is that best left to the market to arrive at, right? So I think similarly with, uh, with I think, content-based regulation also, uh, I think perhaps the state uh, is much better placed at arriving at principles, uh, again, clearly articulated principles, which has uh, clear accountability structures framed within them. Uh, and then those principles create a positive obligation on uh, on the part of, of private companies to, to create these self-regulatory or co-regulatory systems. That I feel is the way to move forward. 
But I think if if we have to talk about uh, meaningful ways in which we can continue to engage with these technologies and for these technologies to actually be empowering, uh, then we do have to to find ways to make them transparent. Uh, and that's, I think, been the theme of my research across various domains, is that there, uh, with the transparency movement also, the problem that we face is, one, a proliferation of information which is not meaningful at all. And secondly, uh, information that we actually need to make meaningful choices. Uh, it's not even that they're not being made available, that information is not being produced or created for it to even be made available. So I think that uh, that is something that needs to change in terms of, of our interaction. We need to find analogies and metaphors uh, which can explain these technologies, not in their entirety, but only to the extent that uh, people who deal with them have a conceptual model of what they're working with. So a lot of us uh, have driving licenses. That doesn't mean that we understand the mechanics of uh, of how an automobile functions but we know enough to to meaningfully deal with it we know that when we press on the pedal it will go forward when we press on the brake it will stop if it's making a certain noise we probably need to check a particular aspect of the engine we we have some understanding of what questions to ask of the mechanic who comes to check it so i think similarly we need to arrive at, at conceptual models for these technologies, which can then uh, lead to some some sort of meaningful transparency around them. Right. And uh, on that note, uh, I think that's a very interesting discussion that we had. And that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, for those of you who enjoyed this discussion, a reminder to please do buy Amber's book, The Network, The Networked Public. Uh, it is available on all major bookstores and on online platforms as well. Uh, thank you once again, Amber, for uh, giving us your time for this podcast. This is a very illuminating discussion. Um, I've taken away a lot of it and I will, of course, go back and read your book once again to think through about some of the things that we have discussed. And I'm sure given the times that we live in, your book will continue to be relevant for many years to come. Uh, Sorry, you wanted to add something. No, I just hope to see a new post-pandemic edition because I feel yes. like you mentioned it and then we've That's all been right. thinking how much technology has become so much more integral to our very existence. So some yeah. of these notions about transparency, like almost like, you know, understanding it like a car, you said uh, some of these are, are very real and very imminent as, as problems. So hope to see that new edition soon yeah. and hope to have you again to discuss that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And before we close, uh, thank you to Afra Asif, who has been our production assistant and who has helped us through in the process. And before we leave, uh, thank you to the New Books Network for having given us this platform. Uh, do stay tuned. We'll be back with more updates soon. Uh, goodbye, everyone.